Psalm 92, verse 1, 2, and 4 says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. Amen? It's great to see you today. Will you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of 1 John? You'll find that in the back of your Bible. Again, if you didn't bring one with you today, we have some on the back bookshelf there in front of the sound booth. Love for you to bring your Bibles with you. Become familiar with God's holy word as we study it. Take good notes in it. First um, John, you'll find in the very back of your Bible, just after Second Peter, just before Jude and Revelation. Today I'm honored to preach First John chapter 2, verse 24 through 27. We'll touch on just a small portion of 27. I want to say that now so that when we get to the end, you go, hey, you only preached on part of 27. You'll know that that was intentional. We'll pick it back up next week. Much here that I'm excited to spend this time with you this morning. Look at God's word with me. First John chapter 2, 24 through 27 says this, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. God's good word for us. Much to cover. Let's jump right in to verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Twice in this verse, we see him say it again. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Twice in this verse, John stresses that the truth that should remain in the believers is the truth that came to them through their ears to their hearts at the beginning of their Christian walk. When John says, what you heard from the beginning is reference to the preaching of the gospel by the apostles that God had made effective in their lives unto saving faith. Listen to how Paul references this in Colossians 1, 5, and 6. Because of the hope laid up for heaven, for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Did you hear it? Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. We're talking about the gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Since the day we heard and understood and took in the gospel, we understood the amazing grace of God in truth. 
This is what John is doing in verse 24. He's calling for the true Christians to abide in the very good news of Jesus that saved them and is at work in them as they continue to abide in it. So to be very clear, what is the gospel? According to the Word of Truth Catechism, question 68, the gospel is the good news of the grace and power of God to redeem undeserving sinners to eternal life through Jesus' perfect sinless life, substitutional sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection from the grave. These sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, from the eternal wrath they deserved. And they are reconciled to an eternity secure, eternally secure relationship with God. Amen? That is the gospel. Church, know it well. It's that, that question and answer in question 68 there is so wonderful and, and uh Praise God that our our youth, our children are learning that question and answer. We've got to get the gospel right. We've got to know it. It can't just be this thing that's out there. This it can't just be a momentary thing. It can't just be an arbitrary thing. It it is an absolute life-changing, life-moving reality John is saying to the believers abide in the gospel cling to it remain in it don't ever move past it let that which utterly changed your life forever be your absolute foundation every day Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 1 and 2 I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast, that's abide language, to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hold fast to the good news that I preached to you. John is saying to his audience here, let the gospel abide in you. That word abide means to hold fast, to be fixed to continue its course, to endure or remain. Don't ever move past it. How do we let it abide in us? How do we stay fixed in the gospel? By never moving past it. By by living our lives in the truth of the gospel and every day that God gives us under the sun. 1 John 2.24 Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. The problem is for far too many Christians, they think the gospel is just for salvation. And then once you're saved, you move on to deeper things. This line of thinking reveals how many don't understand the reality that the gospel is everything to the Christian, both for salvation and sanctification. One pastor theologian said it well when he said, The gospel is not the first step in a stairway. Rather, it is more like a hub on a wheel. 
wheel of truth, everything dependent on that hub. Do you get it? The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. Martin Luther said it well, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. 1 John 2.24 Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Church, the gospel is not just a truth we affirm with our minds. It is also a reality we must experience in our lives with our heart and our soul. Paul speaks of walking in line with the gospel in Galatians 2.14. When we do this, we avoid both legalism and license. And that's where that gospel application to every crossroad, every moment, is so critical. Because without that gospel truth of who we are in Christ alone, we slide into license or legalism. The gospel is the complete and utter surrender of our unrighteous life in exchange for Jesus' righteous life. The gospel is what makes us right with God, justification, but it's also what empowers us to delight in and serve God as we live this life, sanctification. The gospel so changes everything about us that it restructures our motivations our self-understanding, our identity, our worldview. How often does this break your heart when you run into a Christian who kind of talks about a time in their life when they were saved or had some church, or maybe even they're still even active in the church, but it's just so back there. It's, it's not present. It's not moving. It's not boggling them with awe for God and, and, and shaping the way they think and make decisions and navigate their day. By thinking, hoping, and living out the lines or ramifications of the gospel, every dimension of our life is renewed day by day. Spiritual, psychological, financial, physical, corporate, social, you name it. Gospel is to be applied to every area of our thinking, feeling, relating, working, and behaving. Don't ever set it aside. This is what John's driving home in the midst of all this false teaching, in the midst of the corruption that surrounds the people he's writing to. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Cannot, we need not ever move beyond the gospel. Hear me clearly. There can only be a different gospel. Which is no good news at all. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins, no hope, no transformation into Christ-likeness. John is trying to help them firm up their grip on the true gospel, which saved them and set them free. 
The only gospel that saves, the only gospel with power. He's doing this because he doesn't want them to go astray. He doesn't want them to be tempted to believe another gospel, to put their hope in something else. A false gospel taught by false teachers. This is similar to Paul's words to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 1, 6-9. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, great clarity, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And this is essential. And this is why you have to be so steadfast in evaluating who your shepherds are, what is being preached in the church you're a part of. Because there are many who are preaching other gospels under the guise of what they're claiming to be normal Christianity. Our own church had to see many years of important reformation unto this end glorious work of God to humble all of us, me included, to, to see what I was missing according to God's word. Open my eyes to the depth and the richness and the fullness of the true gospel. Church, we must hold fast to the true gospel and let it abide in us every step of the way. There's too much at stake. John is saying, let the gospel abide in you and And look at what he says next. We read it all. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. What does it mean to that we abide in God? Turn with me quickly to the Gospel of John, chapter 15. It's here that Jesus so famously drives home what real abiding in him looks like. Church, you may say we find our way to this passage often. Yeah, that's because it's really good. Really helpful. Jesus accommodates us well, giving us a great metaphor and understanding here. John 15, verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The abiding Jesus is speaking to is reference to the divine fellowship that only those who have been born again, only those who are saved, are capable of having with the divine fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To abide is to actively be plugged into the source of life, which is God Himself. We do not thrive in the Christian life by turning away or unplugging for seasons or times. We do not thrive in the Christian life that way. It's in those seasons where we think we've got enough of a charge, so we go about it our own way, that we drift, that we're susceptible to temptation or false gospels. We wander, we slow down, we, we... 
We see and savor sin instead of Jesus. We see and savor the temporary instead of that which is eternal. To abide is to remain constantly in Christ, pondering His Word, acting for His glory and His will, living out who He is in us, through us. When we abide in Him, we are actively dependent on Him. That's a good way to evaluate how much abiding you're really doing in Jesus. How really dependent are you on Jesus? How much of your day, your week, this last year, are you feeling okay about the path that you're finding or making on your own, the way you're going about that? An illustration I've shared before, I feel like it's helpful. Jesus is not just a defibrillator to our hearts, to jumpstart our heart to life. And then we're done with that most essential work. And so then we move on with our living. No, Jesus is much more like a pacemaker that keeps our heart going. Without him, we, we spiritually wither, we, we die. Jesus is a forever part of us, the source of life that we are dependent on in every way. This is why the branch and the vine metaphor are so wonderful. The Lord has chosen. Because a branch that is separated from the vine is dead. It does not produce fruit on its own. You, Christian, cannot become more patient, more loving, more kind, all the fruit of the Spirit on your own. It's not the fruit of you. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, you are utterly dependent on the Lord to produce that in you. Christian growth is into the vine, our abiding, our clinging, our, our trusting, our, our, our resting in, our, our satisfaction in Jesus. You want to grow as a Christian. You don't try to produce more fruit. That's moralism. That, that's religion. Christian growth is into Christ, and then He changes you from the inside out, producing the fruit of the Spirit. But you don't grow in the Lord. You don't endure if you're trying to cling to the rock or to the fence. You only have that life and that fruit is only produced in you if you cling to the vine. We're desperate for Him every minute of the day. You don't just touch the vine and then you're good to go for a little while. But instead you must be grafted into Him. The problem is too often many Christians treat Jesus this way. We get our little Sunday morning fix. We, we get our few minutes maybe in the Word or a couple well-placed prayers in our day. But most of the day we're just very absent from Him. And church, I just want to love you enough as John's doing for those he's writing to you to say it, just, it won't do. We're desperate for Him every minute of the day to thrive, to produce fruit of the Spirit, so that we really walk by faith and not by sight. Are you in, in some stuff lately that just doesn't add up? Feels wrong, it, it feels sideways. What a moment to put on your faith instead of clinging to your sight. 
trust that the Lord has you and is at work in you, whatever it is. If you're still at John 15 in your Bible, flip back to the end of chapter 14 briefly. Chapter John 14, 19 through 21 will be on the screen as well. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, Jesus says, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus continued in verse 23 of John 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Do you see it? Jesus abides in the Father. I'm in my Father. And now he further assures his faithful disciples of their connection to him, and therefore their connection with the Father and with each other, now and forever. And it will not be dissolved. This is good news, church. When we repent of our sin and trust our lives to Jesus to be reconciled to God now and forever. Romans 5, 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're reconciled to God. That's massive. We're we're grafted in. We're, We're protected by His omnipotent power. His security now and forever. No one can get to us. No one can have us. They they can really mess with our lives and they can even kill the body, but they can't have us. We will abide in the Son and in the Father. The reason why this is such great news is we get God. Christian, does that just floor you day by day? It needs to just, just knock you over. You get God. Never forget that the prize of your salvation is not just that you are forgiven of all of your sins. Yes, the worst ones that you even have a hard time thinking of with true honesty and clarity because they're so wretched. It is totally amazing that God's grace forgives us I mean, when you really understand the holiness of God and the wretchedness of our sin, it's, it's almost beyond comprehension. That His grace saves, forgives. Our modern world reveals how low of a view we have of the holy God when we're guilty of thinking, God, why don't you just save more? Why don't you save this person I love, this child I love, this whatever? instead of just being utterly boggled at the fact that he saves anyone. The prize of our salvation is not just the forgiveness of our sins, though. It it is wonderfully that. 
It's also not that we get to go to heaven. Scripture says that heaven, that, our, that the new creation will be beyond imagination. It's going to be that good. It's not just that. Church, the prize is that we get God. When your life is crumbling, when your dreams are being squashed, when the wickedness of the world's agenda is getting to you and to your loved ones, stand fast. Abide in the fact that you have God because of the gospel's work in you. What compares to that? Nothing. Nothing even comes close. This is John's point of emphasis, and he carries it into verse 25. Look with me. And this is the promise that he made to us. Eternal life. Right? Eternal life. Let's consider the wonder and the beauty of what we who are saved and empowered by the gospel of Jesus are promised. And then we'll look at what the promise means to us. What are we promised, and then what does it mean to us? Right? Those who trust their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior are promised eternal life with God. John 3.16 tells us that God demonstrated His love for His people of every tribe, tongue, and nation in that He gave His only Son, so that all of the believing into Him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 is not an invitation, as many people wrongly use it out of context. It is a declaration of who and how God saves. It's a declaration to Christians who trust their lives into Him, of what we have, eternal life. What will eternal life be like? Again, Word of Truth Catechism, question 122. What will eternal life be like in the new heaven and the new earth for the elect? The answer, eternal life will be a more intimate communion with God. And we will be free from sin evil, sickness, suffering, and death. We will be in the Lord's presence and glorifying Him for all eternity. It is better than we can even imagine. Quickly, let me help us look to Scripture to see why we eternal life is so absolutely wonderful. Number one, there will be no more suffering or death. Revelation 21.4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall we be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This will surely be one of the greatest realities of the eternal life. Word Scripture also tells us that it's going to be beyond imagination, that you could spend a lifetime, in other words, dreaming up what the new creation will be like. But let me remind you of 1 Corinthians 2.9. It is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. You can't paint it, dream it, get to it. 
It's bigger and better than anything you can come up with. I'm glad eternity is beyond my imagination. That its best is bigger than my limited mind can put together. That its peaks are beyond what I've experienced in this life. And in fact, that God is the author of my eternity is a great comfort to me. Church, may we surrender our, our hold, our fleshly hold, our fleshly temptation to want heaven to be our way. That's like, that's like you going and sitting before the top chef in the world and then with your limited understanding telling him what, how to take your Walmart ingredients and make dinner the way you like it to be made. I mean, even if you're good, even if you're Jeremy Sunaga good, that, that's like, that's, that's dog food compared to what he is preparing, right? Oh, okay, Master Chef, let me tell you. So you take the skippy and put it on the... No. And you might go, but I really like that. But, but your faith says you, you, you trust God. Your faith gets that you got no view of what's good compared to what he's preparing. We're so limited to think that only the things that he's given us in this life are the best of what he has to offer in the next. We're so finite, limited in our desires. What we do know is that many things will be better, even their, even their best in the new creation, largely due to the absence of sin, the uninhibited presence of the glorious God. Which leads me to the fact that eternal life will mean lasting satisfaction in God's glory. Uh, Paul gets this so well, he just touches on it in these most critical moments in his writing. 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. <clears throat> that even if the affliction, even if the struggle you're in the middle of now that feels long, it feels hard, even if that is for a lifetime for you, it is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that it is to be have eternal life with God. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is that glory that the saved will experience forever in eternity? It's God. Greatest joy of the new creation will be our uninhibited fellowship in the presence of God. Revelation 22, Matthew 5 says, We'll see God. 1 John 3 2 says, We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Matthew 25 says, We shall enter into the joy of our master. <sighs> yes, Lord. And let me stress our lasting weight of glory and joy is found in the Lord himself. 
It's not in the streets of gold or the reunion with relatives or any other blessing in the new creation. Those things will be great, but they will be a distant second. We must not reduce God to be a key that unlocks a treasure chest full of gold and silver. For that is idolatry. The Bible says rather that the Almighty God will be your treasure. He will be your precious silver. Job twenty two twenty five. In the end, those who want Jesus just to get to eternal life, they're not going to enjoy eternal life. Because eternal life in God's kingdom is all about wonder and majesty and worship of God. Church, this is just a taste I've given you for a moment of what God's preparing for us for eternity according to His Word. May we long for the city that is to come. Hebrews 13, 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We're sojourners in the here and now, living in tents in the middle of battlefields. Jesus said, John eleven twenty five to 26 to her, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is the resurrection and the life, not just in the fact that it gets you out of hell and into heaven, but you believe that in your moment-by-moment days, in the struggle, in the things that aren't going your way, that he is the resurrection and the life. Abide in this truth. Do you believe it? Jesus' question is one for you to answer both for saving faith and, and, and every day after, really. Do you believe this? If you do, you see that you're desperate for Him alone for salvation, resurrection, and life forever with Him in glorification. If this is God's work in you today, confess your sin and trust your life to Jesus and be saved. That's your profession today. Share that with us so we can celebrate with you and walk with you in your new faith. If you are saved, are you believing into Him every day? Does this faith in Jesus define you and guide you in every way? Even in your sickness, even in your job loss, even in your relational struggles, even in the many injustices of this life, if we really get what it means to abide in the gospel truth, then we will look add it all the way Paul does as he describes it in Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, John is fighting for the certainty of the redeemed in this letter. As we've seen many times already, and we will continue to see as we work through it, understand that our certainty is based on the promises of God. 1 John 2.25 And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. This is the promise. Not this might be the promise. This is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. This is good news for our soul. Why? Because the promises of God means real and lasting certainty in a very uncertain world. God doesn't renege on His promises. They are ironclad. They are rooted in His very nature, which is truth and faithfulness. This is, a, this is the cause for certainty in our lives. Christian, do you rest in, have peace in the promises of God? Are the promises of God louder than the noise of the world? Some of you are getting a little unsettled lately with current things happening in the world because you're, you're leaning into the noise too much instead of standing fast on the promises of God. Are the promises of God your foundation when the storms of this life beat on your life? 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. Numbers 23.19 God is not man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. He has said, and He will not, and he will not do it. I'm sorry, let me misstate that with clarity. And Has He said... And will he not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? God in his being, in his perfections, in his will, in his purposes, in his ordinations, in his promises, does not change in any way. He's always been and will always be exactly the same. This means he will not change his mind about who he has or will save. It It means he will fulfill all of his promises. It means he will finish what he started and not stop and change course. This means nothing can overcome him or persuade him to be or to do other than he perfectly is and set out to do. If your soul is longing for dependability, for certainty, in God alone will you find it. For He keeps all of His promises. Amen? Listen to Psalm 46. Just soak it up. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, 
Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He, he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Christian, are you guilty lately of really whining and complaining about how much of the world or our country seems to be going the wrong direction and, and all this stuff? Don't be so fixed on the noise. Be fixed on the truth of God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's the promise. That's what we hold to. That's how we walk by faith in the midst of it. You say it's getting hard. You say it's getting crazy. Are the mountains falling into the sea yet? Right? No. Right? We have a ways to go. Okay? So, and I realize there's imagery there. But the point is still to be held. For we who belong to Him, let us not get swept up in the current of the unfaithful. Look with me at verse 26. 1 John 2.26 says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. The deceivers. Title of the section of my sermon the deceivers and the anyone's. You'll see why in a minute. John moves to loving warning to the believers now. He says, be aware of those who are trying to deceive. God's word is very helpful to constantly warn us of the onslaught of deception the enemy is going to throw at us. Paul says in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are the schemes of the devil? Deception. Craftiness. Blurring consequences. Temptation. The flesh. The, the enemy wants nothing more than to, to send his spies, his agents, to, to trick you, to deceive you, to sway you, to confuse you, to try to cause you to not be certain in God. John is combating this by saying, be certain in Christ and be aware of the deceivers. Be aware of them. Peter speaks this way too. In 2 Peter 2, 1-3, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blaspheming, and in their great greed, they will exploit you and with false words. And their condemnation from long ago is 
not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Church, it's important for us to understand this in today's day and age. We live in an era where people are taught to be open to the ideas of others. I mean, that's, that's Bible for the lost world. And we see how it just stands in total opposition to God's truth. It, to go so far to embrace what the culture of authorities of man declare as right and good. Like they're an authority greater than God. But as citizens of God's kingdom, as adopted children of God's family, as slaves of God who is our master, we look to His Word, the the Bible, for the truth. And we are to be in tune with Him and obedient to the one authority that is above all the rest. Now, there's another group that John warns of. It's in the middle of verse 27. Like I told you, we're going to touch on this for a moment. Opening of 27 says, But the anointing you receive from Him abides in you. We're going to get to that next week. But listen to this next part. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. So in, in so many words, John's really saying, Beware of the anyones, too. Beware of the deceivers, and beware of the anyones. These are people out there who have something to say. And just because someone has something to say doesn't mean that they speak truth or that they center on Christ or that they truly love you. I'm aware that some like to watch TV evangelists. Some are naively open to any Christian book recommended to them or found on the bookshelf. As one of your shepherds, I bring you this warning today. Be mindful, be vigilant, be picky about what you read, about what you watch, and consider truth and sound teaching. Because there are many out there whom are good at loving, they're good, loving, nice people with good intentions who promote false, inaccurate, not Christ centered teachings. These are the anyone's. Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 28-31, Keep watch over yourselves and the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise to distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day with tears. This is Paul's way of saying the church is always threatened. Are you aware, mindful, that we don't get comfortable? Satan never takes vacations. Sin lurks at the door waiting for a moment of doctrinal or moral carelessness. That Those times when we're not abiding in Christ. The command for the elders, therefore, is to stay awake, be alert, know sound doctrine, and watch and protect the church. Calvin's comments on this section of John's letter go like this. When we hear what he wrote about seducers, 
we must always observe that it is the duty of a good and diligent pastor not only to gather the flock, but to also drive away wolves. For what is the use of proclaiming the pure gospel if we connive at the open impostors of Satan? And so no one can faithfully teach the church unless he is set on banishing errors wherever he finds them spread by seducers. Calvin's term seducers is the same term I'm using for deceivers and anyone's. Pastor John Piper agrees. I like how he says this. God's word basically in referencing this part of scripture is aimed at keeping me from being a heartless pastor. It aims to keep me from playing games in this pulpit. It aims to keep my sermons from dissolving into pep talks about the power of positive thinking. It aims to make me earnest about my calling and angry about false teaching and grieved over the destruction of the ungodly. When we look at this part of verse 27, hear me clearly. John is not saying that we don't need teachers. You have no need that anyone should teach you. Okay, Scripture interprets Scripture. So what we know that's not saying is that the church doesn't need teachers. Why? Because elsewhere in God's good word, we are taught that you very much need shepherds to teach you and lead you according to the word of God. Very poignantly, we see this in Ephesians 4, 11-14. He gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. God's word is clear. The church needs teachers. The flock needs shepherds. But these are qualified men of God, and it's not just anyone. God's called to teach the flock is in many places. Titus 1.9, Paul says, an elder must be able to use the Bible to exhort others in sound doctrine. He, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So it's not enough that we just really like th- that particular pastor and how he dresses or um, th- the setting of the church or the, the music or the, 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 those, those things that we like. No, is, is sound doctrine being taught and upheld? It's one of the most critical things that must be discerned in your commitment to a local church. And yes, you should be committed to a local church. You're saved to the body of Christ. Why act like an orphan and not have a local family? God puts this in place so that those who make decisions for the local flock, for the sheep, do not do so based on our opinions or preferences. We're not to teach our own ideas, but to teach and lead from the authority of God's word alone.
Our responsibility is to wield God-honoring influence on others. This is not a light one. And it's not for anyone. There's a discipline of life and study and humility that must come with those who teach. There's a reality of God putting you among us that is a part of that wisdom in leading you. This is why you don't just go out on the internet and find anyone. They're not your shepherds. There's something very critical about that. But that temptation is real, that you're tempted to listen to anyone, especially in our internet-saturated day. But the command of the bride of Christ is that you listen to qualified shepherds who will love and lead you with the word of God, for they will give an account for you. Hebrews thirteen seventeen. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Church, don't be guilty of scrolling the internet looking for anyone who is out there with something to say. For many will present themselves as trustworthy when many in the end are wolves. No, instead, let's look to those that God has appointed to keep watch for our souls and walk with us and lead us as He has ordained. One last great point before we wrap up this morning in verse 27 he says you have no need that anyone should teach you there's also an emphasis here for new revelation and that that's much of what was going to be perpetuated in that day was okay there's this gospel truth and he's saying abide in that there's others who are kind of tempting you with a new idea and you don't need the new idea god's word is sufficient the church doesn't need new revelation You could read this part of 1 John 2.27. You have no need that anyone should teach you any kind of new revelation. See, itching ears is a real struggle for many immature people in the world and even in the church. As we miss out on the satisfying feast of the gospel and instead we treat it like a first course while we long or look for new revelation or theological invention. Don't do this. Abide in the gospel. If the gospel of Jesus Christ is the complete truth for life and godliness, why would we hunger for anything beyond it? These innovations of man or demons are lies and deception. We saw this happening in Acts. The continuous obsession with the latest ideas was the mark of the Athenian. Acts 17.21 Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Sadly, we see it among immature people in the church where they're not satisfied to sit in the, the, the patient patience of the faithful preaching of the Word. No, they declare, no, no, I need something else. I need to study these other things. And I need it now. Like Veruca Salt. Church, this should not be the case. The gospel, the word of God is enough. We don't need the gospel plus something new. We don't need God's word plus something new. It is sufficient through and through. Amen? 
We need to let the original apostolic gospel-centered teaching about Christ that is given to us in God's holy word abide in us fully and enduringly. And just know I'm praying for you on this. That these words that have been proclaimed today from God's word go deep into your mind and your soul and they go to work. That you don't just get busy with Sunday afternoon plans, Monday plans, that, that this moves, it shapes, it, it takes you to abide in the gospel of our Lord and all that God then puts before you, church. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. This cornerstone, this solid ground is firm through the fiercest drought and storm. Amen? Let's sing it together. Pray with me. God, we thank you for this day that you have made this time that you've appointed for us to gather here to worship, to be among the blood-bought brethren. Uh, We are joyful to be your family. We're joyful to be full of your grace and your love, your faithfulness, God. Thank you for being faithful when we're not. Thankful for your, your mighty work in and through us. Thank you, thankful for divine appointments like today to, to shake and to move and to motivate according to your word. Rally us together, Lord, uh, that we would really abide in you in these gospel truths day by day, moment by moment. We well up with worship for you. We would rest in the treasure, the prize that we have in God alone, above all else. <clears throat> Mindful, aware of the deceivers, of the anyone's faithful to the teaching of the shepherds and of the word and all these wonderful means that you've given for our appointment in this day and if you give us tomorrow then tomorrow for your glory others good and our joy by god's grace and for your glory we pray in jesus name amen